Okay, if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15. We've been working through the gospel of Mark, and as you know, last week we actually did not study the resurrection because it's just around the corner, and we, we were still on Good Friday, and, and we're still there today, and we are going, we're going to be getting to the resurrection here in the month of May, but we're in such an important time of study. What an important time to be studying with the Journey Church because we're at what's at the very center, the very heart of what we call the gospel message. We're nearing the crucifixion of Jesus. We're actually, we're going to study the crucifixion in depth next week when we gather. We're going to study today the sufferings of Christ leading up to that crucifixion. And that's a really, really important moment to study in the Bible. Not to feel good. This is not going to be a feel-good sermon. I don't know that any one of you woke up today and, you know, you, you looked out the window and you saw those blue skies. It's springtime. It's beautiful. The temperature's just right. You're chipper. And you're like, boy, I hope we go to church today and study about how Jesus was tortured to death. And I don't, I don't know that anybody woke up like, like that or thinks that way or, you know, most of us, if you're like me, when we think of anything gory, we tend to want to turn our heads, right? When, now, I'm not talking about, like, you know, movie gore. That's not real. Like, we, we, we build up a pretty big tolerance to gore in movies. And, and I'm not talking about, like, gore in, like, an MMA fight or boxing match or something like that. That, that really doesn't bother me much either. I mean, at least... You know, if, if two people are beating the snot out of each other in an MMA fight, you know, they both consented to be there, and in fact, they, they seem to enjoy it. <laughs> that's, that's their thing. That doesn't really bother me, but, but true gore actually makes me turn my head, close my eyes. True gore, like, like bloodshed as a, re, as a result of violence, I mean, pain and suffering as a result of something violent that happens, that's... That's something that I really don't like to see. I really don't like to look at. You know, I'll never forget when I was 20 years old, I was the first one upon a wreck that had happened. And it was a, I, I was 20 years old, and there was a 15-year-old kid on a moped, and he was traveling full speed, which was only like 35, 40 mile an hour on this moped. And he slammed into the back of a parked car going full speed. And so that may not, a moped wreck may not sound like much, but he was mangled. It, it, he survived, but barely. It almost killed him. It did a tremendous amount of damage to his body. And, and so I was standing in my mom's backyard when it happened. And, and, it, and it, 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 we just saw it take place right there on the street. It was, it was in the morning before I was going to work in the watermelon fields when I was 20. And so I, I grabbed... I yelled at my stepdad, told my mom to call 911, and I'm running over there to this kid mangled on, on the ground. He uh, broke out all the, the front teeth in his mouth. There was four or five teeth uh, busted out. That bone between your nose and your, and your teeth, that was broken. Uh, so a, trem a tremendous amount of blood uh, squirting out of his face. He had broken his arm. He had broken his leg, uh, ribs. And, and the way that the moped hit that car, it, was, it, was, it hit the back of like a, hat, a hatchback car, so there's glass everywhere too, and it like, it folded the moped in such a way around him, he was like tangled up in the moped. And so I remember running over there, being the first one, being a 20-year-old a, a kid, right? 20-year-olds are kids, in case you didn't know that. And, and 
and I, having no idea what to do, but there's just gore everywhere. I mean, the blood pooling up on the pavement. And so uh, one sound that I'll never forget hearing is the sound of sizzling, like bacon on a skillet. And when I looked down, his leg was uh, draped over the exhaust and the engine there on the moped as it was in pieces, and it, it was sizzling on there. And so here I am, young and not knowing what to do. Thankfully, my stepdad got there shortly afterwards, and I'm, I'm holding his gooey leg in my hand to try to get it off, hold it off of the engine, and we're trying to, to, talk, to talk to him as he's waking up, and now he's screaming, and, and, the, and the, the blood everywhere and the teeth everywhere. And that moment, being overwhelmed and faced with true gore, I closed my eyes, I turned my head, and I just talked to him until the ambulance got there. That's literally the only thing I knew to do. But I don't like looking at gore. I don't, don't like it. It really bothers me. And, and if you're like that too, it's, we, we tend, I think, to get to a moment in the Bible that is overly gory and maybe just scan past that really quick. We just, we just move on past that. We'd rather look away or not think about it. But when it comes to the gore of Christ and his suffering, you need to look at it. I would encourage you not to read quickly past the gore. Look directly at the gore. It teaches us something. Look directly at the gore so that you can understand what Jesus is doing there in the gore. This is profitable to look at. He, he has suffered for us, and his suffering is part of how our salvation was accomplished. So we need to see it. It's healthy for us to see it. So don't look away. So when we look at the gore, we tend to forget what it means, and that's what this sermon is going to help highlight. But violence against Jesus didn't start at the cross, right? It started in those trials. And I wanted to take a moment to just walk through all of the trials we've been through up to this point so that we can really get a play-by-play -play of the gore as it begins to unfold. That first trial, it was before the unofficial high priest named Annas. We talked about why he was the unofficial high priest. But they took him before Annas. They didn't like the results they were getting from Jesus, the answers he was giving for the questions they were asking. And so the Jewish soldiers that would have accompanied the, high, the unofficial high priest, Annas, they begin to strike Jesus in the face. So after the first trial, this unofficial trial, Jesus is already battered and bruised from being punched in the face by the soldiers who were with Annas. You can read about that in John chapter 18. But that was just the beginning. Because after they take him to Annas, they then take him to the official high priest, which was the son-in-law of Annas, and his name was Caiaphas. And the high priest Caiaphas, along with all of the chief, chief priests and the, the nobles, the ruling Jewish council known as the Sanhedrin, they also put Jesus on trial there in the middle of the night. And what, they, what that interrogation led to was more gore. By the end of that, back and forth, they have Jesus blindfolded. And they begin, in, 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 in addition to punching him in the face, they're now mocking him. They blindfold him, punch him in the face, and say, prophesy. Come on, prophesy for us. And, and in other words, here's what they were saying. Hey, you're blindfolded. We're all punching you in the face. Prophesy and tell us which one of us just hit you. And they kept punching him. And so he's getting hit from several different directions. I don't know if, 
if you've ever been punched in the face before, but for to be punched blindfolded on, it, it, I mean, it's, it's awful, right? It would be terrible. You wouldn't even know where in what direction to wince or to prepare to, to receive a blow such as that. But they were mocking him in addition to, to beating him. And of course, they did not have the authority to put Jesus to death. That was the dilemma that these Jews were in who wanted to kill Jesus. That's why they needed Pilate. And so they took him before Pilate, and Pilate, having interrogated him, decided, I find no guilt in this man. Remember, they were trying to say that he was an insurrectionist. They weren't trying to convince Pilate that he was guilty, that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, which is what they really cared about. But they, they wouldn't waste their time with that charge with Pilate because Pilate is blasphemous. He doesn't care about their charge of blasphemy. So they're trying to tell Pilate and convince Pilate he's an insurrectionist. He's saying he's a king. He's telling us not to pay taxes, which was a lie we know. And, and he's, he's trying to overtake Rome. But Pilate, upon his interrogation of Jesus, determines, no, he's not. This man is not. Is, 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 we're not in danger because of him. So... The part that I skipped last week, because it's not in the Gospel of Mark, is the trial that took place between Jesus and Herod Antipas. Now, if you want to read that, that's your homework text today. You know I always assign a homework text. Like, go home and read this text, and it'll help make sense of what we studied today at church. Go, go read Luke chapter 23. And you'll see that Pilate, wanting to wash his hands of Jesus sends Jesus over to Herod Antipas. Now, we remember on my fake map that I used to always point to, if this is a map of Israel, the northern part of Israel, that's where Jesus grew up there in Galilee, and Herod Antipas was in charge of that area. Well, he happened to be at this very moment in time back in Jerusalem and, and for Passover, to, to celebrate Passover like every other Jew. So Pilate says, you know what, let your own judicial system deal with this send him to Herod Antipas he's in charge of where this guy's from Jesus is Galilean he's from up there around Nazareth just let 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 Herod Antipas deal with him now remember the last time we dealt with Herod Antipas we've studied about him and Mark he's intrigued by Jesus we know that earlier in the gospel of Mark we read how and we studied how uh, Herod Antipas is the one who actually was intrigued by John the Baptist before Jesus and he wanted to hear John the Baptist teach, but he was manipulated by his wife and others to kill John the Baptist. Herod Antipas is the one that served up the head of John the Baptist on a dinner platter. But when he heard about Jesus, and when Jesus rose to fame and popularity amongst the Jews, Herod Antipas was the one that was saying, oh no, is this like John the Baptist resurrected back to haunt me? But he was intrigued by Jesus and wanted to, to learn more about him. So when Pilate sent a battered Jesus to him to interrogate, Herod was more caught up in, as it says in Luke 23, verses 6 through 12, he was hoping Jesus would do a sign for him. Herod Antipas was like, oh good, this is Jesus He's the one that does these miracles. Jesus, do a miracle for me. Perform for me. And of course, we know that Jesus remained silent. That made Herod mad. Herod and the soldiers that he had with him there, it says that they treated him with contempt and mocked him. And they arrayed him in splendid clothing. So they add to the gore by uh, adding to the, the mockery in that situation. They, they realize Jesus is harmless, 
Herod Antipas realizes he's in complete control, and he says to himself, what's a way that I can send him back to Pilate, but let Pilate get a kick out of this? I know. I'll dress him up like a king. They're trying to say he's a king. He's clearly not. So we're going to dress him up in splendid clothing and send him back to Pilate so that Pilate can get a good laugh out of this. And we know that Pilate does. And what Luke mentions in his gospel is that Pilate and Herod Antipas, they hated each other up to this point. Of course, Herod Antipas being a Jew, hating the fact that he's under the thumb of Rome, they, they hated one another. But after Herod did this, it says that Herod Antipas and Pilate became friends. Luke wants us to know that, that they became chummy, they became buddies at that point. Now, when I was doing the research, you know I like to, to, to get into the, the culture and the time and the study there and the commentaries. Herod Antipas, it's, it, it, he, he does this to Jesus to impress Rome because that's how Rome always behaves. Rome used to love public humiliation. Rome did not ever want to just conquer you. They wanted to humiliate you into submission in addition to killing you into submission. And so it's, it's ironic, though, that Herod bought into that philosophy and treated Jesus like that because down the road, just a few years after the death of Jesus on the cross, we learn of a moment in which Rome would do that to Herod Antipas. This is, I'm sharing this moment of history just to give you an idea how cruel and how awful the world was then. Of course, it's pretty cruel and awful now. We can make a lot of arguments for that. But just the way that they love to especially humiliate you if you were under their thumb. The, the Jewish philosopher and an historian named Philo. He records this moment in, in AD 38, again, just after the crucifixion of Jesus, in which Herod Antipas, he's, he's uh, going to Alexandria in Egypt. Now, Rome is in charge there too, right? So the Romans are thinking, oh, this Jewish king's coming into town. Good grief. What's this idiot doing here? How can we humiliate this guy? And so what they do is there was a, a rather large uh, population of Jewish people living in Alexandria during that day, they got a uh, mentally disturbed, this is how Philo descri describes this person, a mentally disturbed Jewish man. They put him up on a pedestal. They get an old rug and they cut a hole in it and they put it over him and a, and a belt around him and they make a, a crown out of, out of papyrus and they put it on his head. They get a, the stalk of that papyrus and they put it in his hand like a scepter. And they put two bodyguards on both sides of him. And that way, when Herod Antipas was coming into town, they gathered every, all the Romans in the streets. And, and when Herod Antipas is, is coming into town with his entourage, thinking this is, where, this is when and where people will honor me, all the Romans turn their back on Herod Antipas, and they pay homage to this mentally disturbed Jew that they had dressed up and mocked, to treat him like he was Herod. And they were paying homage. Homage to Herod Antipas, saying, this is who we think you are. That's how they worked. That's just how the world worked back then. And that's what Herod Antipas learned about the Romans. And so he, in treating Jesus this way, he was acting like a Roman. And it did impress them, and it did make him buddies with them. But it's funny, isn't it, how ironic that is, that he would end up being treated like that. And isn't that how sin works a lot of times? When you break down and embrace what you know to be sin, it oftentimes turns around and bites you in the butt. Well, every time it does, right? That's, that's a sermon for a different time. But when Jesus wouldn't respond to, to Herod, he sends him back 
to Pontius Pilate. He sends him back there because he thinks he's harmless. I don't think he's guilty, he's harmless. You, ha- you take him back, I don't want to have anything to do with this either. So he's back in the hands of Pontius Pilate where we're at today. And we know last week that Pontius Pilate had him scourged and then sent to be crucified. But there was a lot of ruckus that took place just before that, right? As a matter of fact, if you look at one detail in Luke 23... Pilate, after receiving Jesus back from Herod Antipas, says, I tell you what, to appease the crowd, I'm going to punish him, and I'm going to release him. He actually says that to the crowd that had gathered, which was mostly those Jewish religious leaders. And it agitates them. No, don't release him. You need to crucify him. He's like, no, I'm going to punish him and release him. Now, didn't that say a lot about Pilate, too, that he, he... fully believes that Jesus is innocent, yet he's willing to punish him and to to scourge him or flog him anyway, just to appease the crowd. But that we know that that doesn't appease them. They're yelling at him, putting pressure on him. And so he devises a different plan that we studied last week. Pilate says, okay, this is the time of year that I always release one prisoner back to to the Jews. they, They would let the Jews take their pick of all the people that they had put in jail, and every Passover, as a way to appease them, he'd give them one prisoner back. But this time, Pilate chose the prisoner. He chose what is described in Luke as a notorious prisoner, a murderer, an insurrectionist, a person who was actually guilty of all of the things that they were trying to say Jesus was guilty of, but wasn't. He chose the person that was actually guilty, puts him up before them next to Jesus. His name was Barabbas. Here, take your pick. And Pilate fully expected the Jews to pick Jesus because he knew he was innocent. He figured they would, they would relent. And if they really cared about someone starting an insurrection, this guy actually tried. But they don't choose Jesus. They choose Barabbas. Why? Because the chief priests and the high priests, they, they stirred up the crowd in a frenzy and manipulated them just like they were manipulating Pilate to say, we want Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And it's at that point that the gore continued on and started to get really, really bad. They had Jesus scourged or flogged, depending on the translation that you're using. Now, I mentioned it last week, and I gave some details there. It was Family Sunday, had the little kids there, and and uh, I, I, I gave enough details so that you got the point, but I was holding back, let me tell you, because the kids were in the room. Scourging was awful. Scourging was terrible. Getting flogged, it would kill, it killed a lot of people. So they, they had a whip of cords, and in the end of that cord, as I mentioned last week, were all of these, um, you know, a lot of like uh, pieces of metal and, and glass or bone. And this whip was designed in such a way that when it would whip against your back, all of that glass and that metal and those bones would dig into your skin So when you pulled the whip back, after sticking into your skin, it would pull the skin off of your body. Now what I didn't mention last week, and how it gets uh, incredibly graphic, is that they would strip you down completely naked whenever they would do this. And they would either tie you to a post or from the ceiling. Either way, the point of tying you up was to get your feet off of the ground. They wanted to stretch your body out. They wanted you to be stretched out and completely naked, so that they can have access to as much skin as possible and you couldn't contort your body or move around uh, to to hide anything. 
And there was no limitations on this scourging either. There was no like, uh, oh, just, you know, this many lashes and then, and then, then it's done. This is, a, this is someone that's not Roman. So Jesus didn't have rights of a Roman citizen. There was no limitations on flogging or scourging. And, and, and so you would just be flogged until people just got tired. And that's what happened in, in Jesus' case. This is just unimaginable pain. Unimaginable humiliation and gore. I mean, life was so cheap, and it, and it was done for entertainment. So not only did this army not look away, they got more involved in the, in the gore and the humiliation. And that's what we're reading today. We're going to read the whole section in its entirety. Uh, just verses 16 through 20 of Mark chapter 15. Jesus is mocked. Let me read it to you. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put, on his, uh, put, on his, uh, put, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to be crucified. These soldiers wanted to add insult to that injury, right? The scourging meant most of his skin uh, on his back was gone, possibly organs exposed, possibly bones exposed, you wouldn't be able to touch Jesus without getting blood on you. It was a horrific sight. But they wanted to mock and taunt someone in that condition, especially. So cruel. There was no compassion amongst those soldiers. This was something that they were being brought together as entertainment for. There was no one there to defend him. It says that they called together the whole battalion for this entertainment. How, much, how many soldiers is a battalion? Well, it's confusing. You can use that word in that time to represent many different amounts of soldiers. It can be as many as 600. It can be as few as 200. But there were hundreds, regardless, of soldiers gathered together there, the whole battalion gathered together there to, get a, to, to play a part, to be a part of this entertainment. They clothed him in a purple cloak. So in, in Matthew's gospel, it says it's a scarlet robe. In this gospel, it says it was a purple cloak. Well, it was likely just an old uh, Roman soldier cloak. And it was probably faded by the sun. And so the two different colors describing probably a, an old faded garment worn by a soldier. And so uh, either description is, is, is completely appropriate. But they're taking this old cloak and they're putting it around Jesus as, as a way to mock him, to mimic royal clothing. Because that color would have been reserved for, for royalty, right? And so it added to the comedy of the moment. This is where they really started to have a good time. It says they weaved together a crown of thorns because every king needs a crown. They wanted to crown him, probably images of like a victorious Olympian athlete where they put the, the wreath around their head uh, after winning a competition would have come to mind. But they wanted to, to, put a, uh, to put a crown on this king to mock him. 
and to inflict more pain on him. And so they made a, they made a crown out of uh, thorns that were available to them, thorns that would have been readily available any and everywhere in the Mediterranean region. And so when you look at plants that are readily available in that region and were then and still are now, you actually have a lot of options when it comes to things that may have had barbs that, that could have been used for a crown. Some of the, a crown. So some of these barbs uh, would have been uh, really, really big. Now, the, the most common plant is the acanthus plant. It a, has a spiny stem that could be uh, easily woven in such a way, and they would have been everywhere and still are everywhere there. And that word acanthus, it just means thorns. That's the thorn plant. So it's, it very likely could have been that, but there, there are a few plants that it could have been. But so now his face, being battered from being punched multiple times in multiple locations by multiple people, is now bloodied in addition to being hit, but because of the crown of thorns that was pressed down on his head. And after pressing that crown of thorns down on his head, they begin to mock him even more to salute him. They would have been, those soldiers would have been used to saying things like, Hail Caesar! Long live the king. And so they're using that to mock Jesus, saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and, and saluting him to have fun. Again, to add to the comedy of the moment. To have a good time. So they were striking him uh, in his head with, with a reed. Now that word reed can be used for a lot of different things as well. Uh, we're told in Matthew's gospel the reason that they have that reed is not only to hit him on the head with, but they were putting it in his hand like a scepter. Now the word reed that translates to reed in our language, that could be a word that just describes a stick. They could have just grabbed a stick and put it in his hand like a scepter. You know, it, when, it, when I hear reed, when you and I hear reed, we tend to think of, of something flimsy uh, something like a, a cattail or something like that, but it's likely that this was a stick. And it, the same word was also used for an arrow. So they, they may have just taken an arrow that was laying around and putting it in his hand with the crown on his head to position him, bleeding and pathetic, to look like a king so they could salute him and have a great time. It's likely the reason they were hitting him in the head with it because he didn't have the energy to hold on to it, or perhaps not wishing to play along, when they put that reed in his hand or the arrow in his hand, he threw it down, not wanting to, to, to play a role in this and, and let him have a good time. And they would just pick it back up, hit him on the head with it to mock him, and shove it back in his hand and wrap his fingers back around that arrow so that they could continue the fun. And every time they would, they would spit on him and they would kneel down to pay homage to him. They wanted to maximize the disrespect, maximize this point of pain and humiliation. Just go over the top. I mean, just think about how unbearable it must have been to be Jesus in that moment. And yet, the whole time, he completely and fully expected it. I mean, isn't it incredible? that this moment was not unexpected to Jesus. As we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, we'd studied three different times in which Jesus said this was coming. In chapter 10, verses 33 through 34, it was the most descriptive prophecy. Here's what he says to his disciples. This is just before they're entering 
Jerusalem, just before they're, they're going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, he says to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Jesus prophesied every single one of these unbearable moments. And so as he's in the moment receiving the mockery, receiving this torture, he knew he would be there. He knew that point in time would happen. And right after Jesus says that in chapter 10, remember again what James and John said to Jesus after that moment. Now that we've just considered how awful of a moment it was to see that prophecy fulfilled in the life of Jesus, remember what James and John said when he prophesied it. They said, Jesus, grant us to be, when you're, when you're crowned in glory, grant us to be at your left and at your right. No wonder in that moment Jesus said, you don't even know what you're asking. You have no idea what you're talking about. They completely bypassed his prophecy, completely ignored what he had just said. And they said, let us be at your left and let us be at your right. They didn't know what they were asking because in reality they were asking to be on the cross to his left and on the cross to his right. They could have never have dreamed that they were asking for that. But yet that's the suffering that led to the kingship of Jesus Christ. That's the suffering that leads to our salvation from sin. Here's why. You should look directly at the sufferings of Christ. You need to look at the gore. Because when we look at that gore, it helps us to understand what he's doing in that gore. Scholars say it like this, his humiliation, it leads to his exaltation. When we look at the gore and understand the gore and what he's doing in that gore, it leads to our worship of him. It helps us to understand what exactly he is accomplishing for us in that moment and why it needed to happen. Hebrews says it like this or explains it like this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I, it might be fair to say it like this for the sake of this sermon. Here's what I want you to understand. His crown of glory is his suffering. Isn't that a strange thing to think of? The, the Bible is so fascinating to me. It's in a constant, like when you read it all the time, it, it will constantly take your breath away how it operates. When you, when you study the Word of God and consider the fact that it was written over, uh, over, over a thousand years, and, and it was written in like three different continents, all these different places, and it was written by all of these different authors, it's incredible because all of these moments in time that we learn in the Bible, they play into one another. They prepare you for what's next. And so when you're reading and studying the gospel in Genesis, for example, you'll see what you learn there play out through the rest of Scripture. And that's, that's how the living word works and stuns us and, and teaches us. And there's a moment like that in this moment 
that you and I need to understand so we can understand what this picture of suffering is teaching us. When you read in the, in the book of Genesis and you study about the story of creation with Adam and Eve and how sin enters the world, we see that God curses the earth. He curses Adam and Eve and the earth. And, he, and God says to Adam, because of your sin, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Thorns and thistles, a product of the fall of man. A part of the curse is thorns and thistles. And you're going to have to work for your food really hard. That acanthus plant that was readily available all over that courtyard and around the governor's palace, the praetorium is what they would call it, acanthus plants everywhere thorns and thistles because of the sin that entered into this creation through the first Adam. And those thorns that represent sin were woven into a crown and placed upon the head of Jesus. What does that teach us about his kingship? His crown is sin. And when you think about the soldiers in that moment, they thought they were in complete control there, right? They meant to weave together a, a, a crown that would hurt Jesus and mock him and humiliate him. And, 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 and they, were, they were thinking that they were exercising absolute power over Jesus in that moment. But they were unknowingly participating in something divine. They were unknowingly participating in something that had been playing out since the book of Genesis up to that point in time. This crown of thorns was was part of what happened in the beginning. And when they placed that crown of thorns, that ancient consequence of sin on Jesus, it was the perfect crown to teach you and I what Jesus is doing there in that moment. They could not have chosen a more perfect crown for Jesus. He was becoming cursed for us. He was becoming a curse for us. He was becoming sin. The one person who's ever existed who had no sin in his life was being made sin, crowned with sin in that moment. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, that is the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin. The Son, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See how important it is to look at the gore? It's reminding us that's our sin crowning Jesus right there. That's Jesus taking upon himself the sin that you and I deserve, the sin that Barabbas deserved. He's taking it upon himself. And that act of taking our sin upon him, being made that curse for us, that is what really makes him king. That is what establishes him as the king of this kingdom that we are a part of. So never look away from the gore. Never look away from the mockery. It's there because of you. It's there because of me. We need to look at that, look at that and be reminded that's how my sin was dealt with. It's a picture of the curse of sin that Jesus saves us from. He, 
in that sense, is the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied, that we sing about all the time. That suffering servant is our king. And so that's what we want to reset our lives upon every Sunday when we come to church. We want to come back to that gospel truth to remember our salvation, how it was accomplished, to understand it so that we can understand who God is, we can understand who we are in relationship to him. And when we look at the gore, it results in our worship. And that's what we want to do today as we continue this service, is to continue that worship. With this knowledge, we, we, we take that into an act of communion to, to take the bread and remember the body. His sinless life lived for me. Jesus lived for you so that when you stand before God, you are seen as righteous because you, as having faith in Jesus, are seen as righteous as Jesus is. When we have faith in him, that righteousness is imputed to us. When we take that juice, it's to remember the blood shed on the cross, the torturing and the suffering and the death of Jesus is how our sins were punished. It's not that our sins weren't punished. They just are, 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 are that anybody got away with anything. Our sins were punished. God is still just. It was punished upon his son who was made sin so that we could be righteous. That's our hope. That's our faith. And if that's where you're at today, take communion. Be nourished by that truth. You know, when we remember that truth, it literally spiritually nourishes us. It makes us spiritually healthy. It gives us the spiritual nutrients we need to live our life productively for the kingdom. So take that with that frame of mind today, and let's worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a group of believers to gather with to study such a gory moment in Scripture. Thank you for a body of believers who are willing to look at it, to understand it, and to know why it's there. Lord, we oftentimes mistakenly want to come to church just to feel good and to laugh and hoping the pastor makes us giggle. But Lord, that's not always what's healthy. Lord, we need to, to be confronted with our sin and be confronted with what was done to deal with our sin so that we can reprioritize our life, so that we can come here and, and be healthy believers. Lord, I pray for each and every person here today that as they examine their life, as they truly think about and contemplate how they're living this Christian life, Lord, that there would be conviction welcomed into their mind, that they would actually welcome that, and that they would, by your grace, repent uh, of, as a result of feeling these convictions. Lord, that when we walk back into this world this week, we can be active participants in your kingdom. Lord, bless this moment right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.